Welcome to another episode of Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. So it is January 2024, and a lot of people in my life, especially a lot of women right now, are engaging in what has come to be known as dry January. So this is, for those of you who don't know, a month of abstaining from drinking alcohol. Uh, and people are doing it for all kinds of reasons for those who are. Maybe a little bit of overconsumption was had over the holidays. Uh, maybe this is just a means of getting a little bit of a jumpstart on health for the new year. But a lot of people are doing this this month, and sometimes it's been prolonged now into the month of February and beyond. Now, maybe I'm talking to you, so maybe this is you. Maybe you are doing dry January. Maybe you've thought of it, or maybe, like me, you've been reassessing your entire relationship with alcohol and the role that it plays in your life. So before I introduce my guests for today's episode, um, I first wanted to share this. Uh, for those of you who follow me on social media like Instagram, you know that I stopped drinking alcohol back in September of 2022. So it's about a year and a half ago. And a lot of you, when I announced this, said, why, 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 why are you doing this? Well, in my health and wellness journey, it kind of just stopped making sense to me, and alcohol no longer was serving me in my life. Uh, I just couldn't justify eating well and exercising, uh, working so hard to take care of my body, to take care of my brain, only to, in my opinion, drink away my gains for the sake of a momentary release or perhaps for stress relief. And I asked myself, if this drink isn't helping me, is it actually hurting me? And the answer for me was a very clear yes. It was affecting things like my gut health, my mental clarity, my brain health, my ability to tackle the next day effectively, and my ability to truly connect with others and ultimately, it was becoming more and more of an escape of stress rather than helping me actually face and reduce stress that I was facing in my life. Finally, last September, when a study commissioned by Health Canada released new drinking guidelines stating that alcohol is linked to at least seven types of cancer, well, that was it. That was the last straw for me, and I capped the proverbial bottle one last time for good. Now, we all have our reasons for drinking or perhaps not drinking in 2024, and I think we are, if you ask me, seeing a turning point in the relationship between alcohol and especially alcohol and women. My guest today understands that very well on both a personal level and on a journalistic one as well. Anne Dowsett Johnston is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author turned psychotherapist. She worked at McLean's Magazine for more than 25 years, where she was best known as the chief architect of the McLean's University rankings. She also prepared a 14-part series on women and alcohol that was in the Toronto Star. And then in 2013, wrote the best-selling book, Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, part memoir, part journalistic exploration of what she calls the pinking of the alcohol industry. Uh, Anne first released this book 10 years ago with sobering statistics about women's consumption of alcohol and also by sharing her own real, raw story of alcoholism and overcoming the most difficult days of her life 
Now, for me and for so many people who read her book, it debunked the perceptions we may have of who falls into the grips of alcoholism and why and how so many high-functioning, successful women battle often in secret and shame with alcohol. So here today to share her story and where women's relationship with alcohol is 10 years after she first published her book, Drink, I am so honored to have with me Anne Dowsett Johnston. Great to see you again, Anne, and thanks for being here on Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. Thank you, Melissa. You're the one and only, I'd say, after the story you just shared. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. It's one that I've had transparency with, uh, at least on my social media community for a long time, because I think it is books like yours, people like you who have been so open and honest and transparent with your own stories that is slowly but surely changing the conversation around women and alcohol and slowly but surely breaking down the stigma around even talking about how we feel about it, how we use it, its role in our lives. So I do want to thank you so, so much for that to begin with. Thank you. You first wrote Drink, as I mentioned, 10 years ago. It's the 10th anniversary of the publishing of your book. And you wrote back then, women and high-risk drinking is a problem we can no longer afford to ignore. So 10 years later, is this problem getting worse or is this problem getting better? It's getting much worse for women. It's interesting. I just spoke to the wonderful Carrie Keyes from Columbia University, who is one of the top alcohol researchers and one of my go-to people. And she was saying what is happening is women are partaking in university college education more than ever before. And that is where the acculturation to binge drinking really takes place. And then they tend to postpone um, getting married, having families, and climb the corporate ladder. And that's where the heavy extreme drinking is is unfolding. And that's a cultural, you know, we've focused so much on mummy drinking, but actually this is a big part of why women are catching up and soon to outpace men, I think. We're going to get into that as well, because as you mentioned, and you talked about 10 years ago in your book, it, it's this culture, and as you call it, the alcogenic culture that is starting very, very young. It's not just appearing when a woman is 35. It's it's starting at 16, 17, 18, maybe even sooner in some cases. Now, you, know, you write in your book, 80% of people who binge drink are not alcohol dependent. And in fact, the majority of people who are probably listening to this or watching this, you know, they do enjoy their glass of wine at the end of the day. They do enjoy getting together with their friends on the weekend, having some dinners and having some drinks. And it doesn't seem to be, at least to the naked eye, an issue at all in those cases. So why is alcohol for women different than alcohol for men. You know, democratically we're equal, but metabolically and hormonally we're so different. And we process alcohol in a very different uh, manner. And therefore, um, you know, both men and women, for instance, can get strokes from drinking alcohol excessively, but women will get those strokes uh, four times faster go through the 200 plus diseases and cancers that are linked to alcohol consumption. And almost every time it's worse for women. 
we telescoping is real. We become addicted much faster than men. And so I don't think that's fully understood or well understood in the population. We're starting to appreciate the link with breast cancer, but not what I just spoke of. So you talked about dependency, and I do want to to discuss that a little bit, because what do we know about those women who do develop an alcohol dependency? What are the risk factors for those that differentiate, you know, a group of ladies having their weekend drinks together? And who of that group may have increased risk factors for that drinking or even binge drinking to turn into something more serious like dependency? Well, I think the main thing to say, and we can talk about genes in a minute, but the main thing to say is that it's a progressive disease. If you want to call it a disease, I call it an affliction. It's progressive. And so you start having the one drink of wine a night, glass of wine that becomes two, that over time becomes three. And then there's a real craving. There's a real craving and everything that comes with drinking a little bit too much, which is interrupted sleep, feeling worse in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. So when I'm working with women, I often say, how is it impacting your life? Are you drinking to numb and are you self-medicating? And all too often women are self-medicating. What ails them? Whether it's depression, anxiety, burnout, hormonal issues, and so on. Let's dive into that. It was a fascinating thing to read in your book that you had this one line that said, you know, there's a difference between why men drink and why women drink. And you discuss some of it there. So let's go back one step. What, why is it that men drink? And then we'll get into even deeper the, the issues behind why women drink and how it is different. It's very different. Men tend to drink to socialize. They tend to drink to hang out with their buddies. And as it progresses, they may hang out with different buddies and maybe a sports bar versus where they used to drink over a fine meal. Um, Women tend to isolate. They create real rituals. Now, you could argue that that's partly because of the shame in our culture when women drink, we're seen as sloppy. But there tends to be this kind of ritual. You go to the book club, you drink exactly what everybody else does. And when the book club is over, you go home and open a bottle of wine by yourself and drink out of your favorite glass. And that's the ritualization. And that's very common in women, the solo drinking, if you have a problem. And I think that that is frightening in the sense that it's um, often self-medicating, as I said a minute ago. Um, whatever ails you. And we know culturally that many things can be complex in a women's life. You know, what I found interesting, at least in my own assessment of my relationship with alcohol was asking that question was, you know, why am I drinking? And, and I think I'm very typical in some ways that COVID being that time when so many people were stuck at home and listen, there was a lot of really negative, heavy, scary things that were happening. And I think uh, collectively as a culture, a lot of people were driving themselves into the bottle because there was a lot to escape. There was a lot to numb. And and I remember for me, that was a wake up call where I thought, why is it that I I feel like I have to drink to, of course, numb and, and get away from what was everyday just terror sometimes in in the high points of the pandemic. If we can get into your story, what I find 
so fascinating, at least that I could relate to, was you being this super high functioning woman. And I I would love it if you could share a little bit about that trajectory for you, where things started to, where you knew something was moving from perhaps being more social and casual in nature and how you knew that something else was taking over and when. Yeah, for me, and this is not uncommon, my drinking in my late 40s changed um, with perimenopause, with complexity, with my son moving off to university and therefore dealing with empty nest syndrome. So there was an emotional component, there was a hormonal component, and I was reluctant to take antidepressants. I had a huge um, problem with depression and uh, as you say, I was high functioning, but I had this secret affliction problem and I would drink to deal with it. And it became, it, it switched from a pleasure in something that I really enjoyed to something that I counted on and something that I counted on to get me out of trouble and something that I counted on to get me to sleep, to unwind, relax, to maybe, um, certainly bring my shoulders down from my earlobes if I was headed out to a dinner party or a party itself. So it was a social lubricant. It was many, many things. It was almost everything to me. And then it became trouble. And when it became trouble, my loved ones stepped in. And that was, given that my mother was an alcoholic, I was determined I would always answer their concern. And I did by going to rehab. Was there a particular day or instance or moment that you said, all right, it's different today? Yes. My cousin, Doug, was killed by um, a driver under the influence. He had his youngest daughter of four children in the front seat with him. He was killed immediately and and his daughter was brain damaged. I looked at that loss and the fact I'd lost my childhood to alcohol and thought, I'm losing me. I then proceeded to get blackout drunk at his wake, which was just about the worst thing I could have done. And when I woke up and realized what I had done, I realized that there was no, there was no exit for me other than to quit. It took about a month for me to come to terms with that. It was the Christmas season and it was very complicated. But uh, in January, I did, I did sign up for rehab. And was it taking a sledgehammer when I didn't need to? Perhaps. But I really wanted the point to be taken by my family. So your experience growing up with your mother who was battling alcoholism it clearly sounds like that informed your own choices when that moment came. It did. Do you find that that's typical? Very typical. I mean, often people will say that they had um, an alcoholic parent. Um, and I think for me, it was, she was a classic Betty Ford drinker. She was of the 60s, you know, mixing it with Valium, as so many women did stay-at-home mom. And all I could think was, I don't look anything like her. I go to work. I win awards at work. I don't miss work. I'm highly um, professional and high-functioning, and therefore I can't, be, I can't be an alcoholic like my mother, which of course wasn't true. I was. 
And, you know, we have to blow the whistle on ourselves. And that meant really working with the denial that I had that I didn't have a problem. I had a serious problem, a really serious problem. And it took eight months, about eight months for me to really confront that, change my life fully, really step away from work and take a hard look at what I was doing with my life. We're going to get to more about your recovery um, a little bit later because it's just such an amazing story and I think one full of, of hope and inspiration. You know, when we sort of zoom out right now in the beginning of 2024, do we know how much more women collectively are, are drinking than we were even a decade or a generation ago? I mean, how different is the way we drink today as women versus the way it was a generation ago? Radically different. We used to go to university or get to our early 20s. And while men didn't stop, young men didn't stop, we got married and we stopped. We stopped, we really pulled back on the behavior of perhaps our college years. That isn't the case anymore. That is, you know, as you were saying earlier, people start drinking um, in high school or before, but the escalation happens during the university years. And people just continue. People just continue and postpone marriage, postpone having children, and therefore have the disposable means to drink in fancy restaurants as much as they want. And one of the things we tend to forget in this conversation is why? Because it's fun. Because it's fun. And I think we miss the biggest part of the story if we don't admit that it is fun. But, you know, take a woman. Take a woman who is working at a law firm and she goes out with her five male colleagues and they're drinking after work. And this is a true story. And no one has the guts to say when they say we'll have another round, but not for her. She is half our size or two thirds our size and shouldn't have another glass of wine. And so we go toe to toe in the workplace, toe to toe when we're drinking and it doesn't suit. It absolutely doesn't suit. And you talk again a lot about this alcogenic culture and it is tied into what you just said which a lot you're right we don't hear a lot of people say it it's fun you know getting together and having these jovial times together over drinks part of it is the fun and so what does that alcogenic culture look like today Wh where do we see it manifest in everyday life it is surround sound messaging. It's the wallpaper. It is the, you know, people will say, well, I don't see those messages. Yes, you do. You do on television. You do on Netflix. You do on the big screen with movies. You do um, in your LCBO with their advertising. It's, it's everywhere. The messaging is everywhere that you will get to a certain age and it is part of being a 17, 18, 19 year old, the, the whole notion of joining adulting. And it is part of the adult world. And it is, you know, it's very interesting. It's the only drug in our culture where we have to make an excuse for not partaking. <laughs> Nobody's going to challenge you on not using cocaine, but they will challenge you on why you're not having a drink. You are speaking my language. This has been my life for the last two years. Yes. 
Yes, it's totally true. Or people will say to me, you're 15 years sober. Surely you could have a drink by now. They don't. And of course, I'm not going to. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it, let's let's dovetail then this to what you also discuss in your book, which is the, you know, as you call it, the pinkifying of alcohol. Because the context of not only this podcast, but specifically this episode, is women and our relationship with alcohol. And, you know, I hearken back to anybody who is a Mad Men fan. You know, there was definitely a culture that we all can, over people of a certain generation, look back to and say, yeah, you know, drinking, uh, the drinking culture was so associated with men and men's behavior and the workplace. And something has significantly shifted with what you call the pinkifying of alcohol and alcohol consumption. So, Take us through that. When did that start happening? And what is the message and being sent to women and why? It's such a great story. In the mid-1990s, the alcohol industry, the spirits industry said all the Johnny Walker drinkers were dying out. What were they going to do? They did market segmentation and realized a whole gender, female gender, was underperforming. So they invented the Alcopop, those you know sweet uh, premixed drinks. Mike's Hard Lemonade, um, et cetera, Smirnoff Ice. And it was an experiment to try and get young women to um, engage when they weren't going to drink beer. And in fact, it took off. Smirnoff's profits went up in one year, 66%. And those women graduated, young women graduated from those teenage drinks, cocktails with training wheels is what I call them. Hmm. And they moved on to fine wine, to berry flavored vodka to all the girly drinks and went toe to toe with young men in university playing drinking games only he was drinking beer and he ate before the evening she was two-thirds his size was drinking shots of tequila for her weight and hadn't eaten so that is really challenging and she grew up to be the mom who drank on play dates with her children and other moms. And so there's a whole story there. Those those women who are now mothers were once those girls drinking drinking Mike, Mike's Hard Lemonade. And so a whole story has unfolded. And it's a fascinating one. It's a fascinating one. And I think I certainly, I see myself in that person that you are talking about that sort of graduated from what you call the Alcopops and it was those sweet girly drinks into other things. You discuss in the book also this playbook, this very concerted, intentional move by what you call big alcohol to not just target and aggressively target women, but the playbook that they used coming from a whole other industry that we are kind of looking at in the rearview mirror called Big Tobacco. So take us through that. Well, indeed, some of the players were the same. They migrated from big tobacco to big alcohol, and they used the same playbook. And the playbook was, you know, what worked for for men in power, you deserve a drink at the end of the day, actually worked for women. As women became, you know, a larger part of the workforce and successful, you too can have a drink at the end of the day. And what didn't change in the social revolution that we're looking at what didn't change is that women had, you know, I would argue four shifts, not not one, not two, not three, but four shifts in their lives of going to work, coming home, 
overseeing dinner, overseeing homework, going back to work in the evening, doing laundry, etc. And so the bandwidth of their duties um, versus a man's hasn't, you know, the, the balance of power has not changed that much for women. And so, of course, have a drink, have a drink. And is it that different really from my mother's generation when Valium was overprescribed? Maybe not. Mother's Little Helper became Chardonnay, became Sauvignon Blanc, became, you know, the uh, absolutely can't talk about this without talking about sex in the city and the cosmo. The whole perpetration of the notion that if you were happy and you had female friends, you were going to have a drink as well. And book clubs became wine clubs, etc. When you break it down like that, it's so eye-opening because it takes it from something that seems to be so abstract and everywhere. It's just ubiquitous to understanding the mechanics behind it, which certainly made me sort of stand up and take a look at the whole practice and industry so, so differently. We can't talk about the culture of alcohol, uh, certainly not in 2024, and certainly as many people are listening to this, thinking about or engaging in dry January, and not talk about the consequences, the real consequences of alcohol consumption for women specifically, because as you mentioned off the top of the show, it is very, very different what is happening to us biologically when we drink compared to that of a man's behavior. So let's discuss the consequences. And I want to do this with the backdrop of the study by the Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse, which was commissioned and funded by Health Canada. It was released back in September, and it it updated the 2011 guidelines for drinking for men and for women. And it it categorized drinking and the number of standard drinks per week in terms of low-risk drinking, moderate drinking, and high-risk drinking. And it did so in the context of understanding, well, what were the consequences? And so just for the the purpose of recapping the bottom line of that, two drinks or less per week is now considered low-risk drinking, three to six drinks per week, a standard drink, which we'll discuss what that even means. Three to six standard drinks per week for uh, is considered moderate drinking. And if you are drinking seven or more drinks per week, Uh, that is considered high-risk drinking, and then listing the risks of increasing alcohol consumption from those categories, such as increased risk of heart disease, stroke, and cancer, and as we said, including alcohol being linked to at least seven types of cancer. This was a sea change to even what had been listed in 2011 as guidelines of 10 standard drinks per week for a woman, 15 standard drinks a week for men, So the consequences that were listed in this latest study really was a wake-up call. I can speak for myself, but I just know among my friends, all of us, it made us stop, stand up, listen, and take notice. So what are the alcohol consumption risks for women specifically that came out of that? What did these updated guidelines say to you? They said that no amount of alcohol is safe. They said that the link with cancer, that it is, it is a class A carcinogen. We have known that for a long time. We've known that for so long that it was in my book 10 years ago. And no one wanted to pay attention. We wanted to pay attention to the fact that it was good for heart health. And we debunked that 10 years ago as well. So essentially, it pulled the rug totally out 
from any notion that this was healthy. This was not like vitamin D. This was um, a very dangerous thing to make prevalent in your life. And as you say, it made many people chatter, many people reassess, many people really think and talk about the role of alcohol in their lives. And so it was really, I think, very successful and very brave to be as blunt as it was. And now we have the United States following suit. Um, I'm sure there's going to be huge pushback as there was here by the alcohol industry. And I think that it'll be interesting to see if it goes forward in the United States where the Republicans are fighting. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But in Canada, it is fact. And I think an enormous wake up call. You know, just as you say, there's going to be pushback. There was pushback when uh, the research and science was coming about the impacts of tobacco use and smoking. You know, there are some people who are saying, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to look back on this time and it will be a repetition of that cycle that we experienced with tobacco, which we now look and say, how did we ever say that that was healthy? Do you think that there is that possibility that one day we'll have that same discussion, but about alcohol? You know, I would love to say yes, and I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say no because 80% of Canadians, 15 and over, drink. That's a much higher percentage of uh, than in the United States. And I think that we are an enthusiastic population. That would be a polite way of putting it. And I think that in 30 years, things could change. But I think it will take that long. I think it will take that long. I mean, I think... It was phenomenal, and I wrote about this in the Globe and Mail when we saw that alcohol was considered an essential service during the pandemic. Hmm. You know, it was essential that we have our alcohol. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And there was an epidemic of female drinking in the pandemic. Um, it was an actual hidden unfolding of a story because we were so busy looking at COVID we forgot to look at the fact that people, largely that people, especially women, were drinking far more. And all I could think of as a daughter of two alcoholics was those poor children, those poor children in isolated homes, not going to school, where alcohol had become the elephant in the, in the living room. I thought, this is really scary. That is one of the many costs of both men drinking and women drinking. And, and let's discuss that a little bit. Uh, you talk about it in the book about the the human cost of drinking. And uh, I certainly saw it easily from the perspective of a woman who's in a house with a male who is drinking, uh, whether it's problematic drinking or not. But you just uh, alluded to it as well with regards to women drinking. So let's break down that the human cost and and the financial cost, the economic cost that we face also as a result of alcohol consumption, what are some of those? Well, it's interesting. All too often we talk about the cash cow of alcohol and how it's good for government and so on and so forth. And there was a very interesting study done a few years ago where a researcher, Gerald Thomas, looked at actually the cost to each province in terms of policing, hospitalization, et cetera, when it came to the use of alcohol. And surprise, surprise, it is not a cash cow. I'm really taken by the Scandinavian countries that look at the 
um, mon to have monopolies on alcohol, and then they funnel the the revenues into health systems, which is really, I think, progressive. But we don't do that. We don't do that at all. So we think that collecting tax money from alcohol sales, what a great you know uh, boost to the coffers, but. We're seeing things like you said, hospital visits, injuries, car accidents, um, domestic abuse. You write yes. about in the book. When we go back to the early days of drinking, the amount of uh, alcohol-related injuries or poisoning from young people going into emergency rooms and needing care—is that number? Is that sort of the invisible toll that we need to discuss more when it comes to alcohol consumption? We do, and what we're seeing emerging, which we saw years ago out of the UK is we're seeing an inordinate number of young women needing liver transplants, which is terrifying. You know, the normalization of binge drinking is such that it's become common in universities to call the ambulance at the end of the night for the young woman who's in trouble. Well, those young women are now losing their livers. And you know, as I say, the UK was the canary in the coal mine, but that's come to North America, and it's very disturbing. It's um, I, it's why we're having these conversations because I think it is. I think the more we talk about it and yell about it on every single platform, I think it's it's part of this collective call to to look at things differently. You know, when I decided to to stop drinking alcohol, I knew it was going to be a big change. I, I announced it to my friends and my family, the closest people in my lives, in my life. And then I had to say to myself, okay, well, then now what? Which is a really scary thing for some people. And, and I never considered myself having a quote unquote problem with alcohol. Although, you know, now even when I look back at that time, I think it was so closely linked to good times. You talk a lot about this in the book. It was so closely linked with good times and partying and bonding and connection with my girlfriends. And I never drank by myself. Um, but I started to realize when it wasn't there, I thought, oh, oh, I see what's happening here. And I think it's a scary prospect in the now what. When you made big revelations in, had revelations in your life, you were talking about your cousin's wake, for example. What did you start to learn about yourself in that process of getting sober? Well, I learned that I had been a workaholic before I was an alcoholic and that it, my drinking had actually served me and then didn't serve me in terms of devoting myself as heavily as I had to my work. So I downed tools for two years. I downed tools and became very quiet and did not work as heavily and took a hard look at my life and what I wanted to bring in um, to my life and what I could actually jettison. And that was an, a very interesting process. And that was sort of the major thing. The, the small things included going to bed and being able to read a book and remembering what I had read the next day, hmm. because when I was drinking, that wasn't possible. Everything benefited. My friendships benefited. My relationship with my son obviously benefited. Um, it was an incredible journey of coming back to myself and not just reinvent, re reclaiming my old self, but choosing what I was going to 
do going forward. So at 64, I went back to school to become a psychotherapist. Um, none of this would have happened if I had been drinking. None of this would have happened. I was able to look at my life completely differently. And I always say the university has a the universe has a better imagination than we do if you stop drinking. Um, good things will happen. Good things will happen because you make room for them. Alcohol hogs a lot of space in your life. And it tends to edge out other things. Intimacy, good friendship, solid friendship, parts of your personality. And you get to reclaim those and more when you give up drinking. I'm not a prohibitionist. I want to say that. I'm not a mm. prohibitionist. I enjoyed alcohol a lot. But for me, that journey ended. Is there a world where alcohol becomes something that is something that can be enjoyed truly responsibly at this sort of low-grade background level, uh, of course, without companies experiencing the same profits? But is there a world where there is a healthy place for it? It's an addictive substance. It always will be. And I think that by that very fact, it will always cause problems. It is a troublemaker. And the piece of writing in my book that I'm most proud of is the opening preface, which is called Booze is a Loan Shark. And it is a loan shark. It will, it will give you um, confidence. It will give you self-assurance. It will give you the, the ease with which to enter a crowded wedding or a crowded party. And then it will come calling and ask for payback. And the payback is severe. And so I think it's really important to know that it is an addictive substance. And many of us without intending became addicted to it. And then, I mean, we've talked a lot about the bad news. The good news is that we now, because of the pandemic, have modern recovery alternatives that are extraordinary. And we have, as you said, dry January and people experimenting with how they would like their relationship. But of the 80% who drink, are we really going to see the world that you're talking about? I'm afraid not. You know, there's two times that I cried reading your book, and one of them, they both happened right at the end, uh, and there was a lot of very difficult uh, stories that you share in there. But I cried tears of joy um, at the end of the book when you discuss, you know, how much you had lost because of drinking, and your son said, okay, just write down a list. Write down a list of everything that you've lost, and also write down the list of everything that you've gained. And I found it so powerful, that healing power that came from your son. And after that exercise, you looked and realized how much you had gained as a result of breaking up with alcohol. And, and yes, you had lost a partner, a husband in this, but your list of what you had gained was so much longer. And I found that so hopeful and inspirational. For people who are listening, for people who are watching, who are maybe at this precipice, they're at a fork in the road and they're saying, you know what? I'm hearing a lot about this. I know it's not great for me. Alcohol and I, we're having a tough time. What is your advice to that woman who may be very typical in so many ways, maybe doesn't necessarily have a dependency issue, but knows it's not serving me the way that it used to? What are some words that you can give to her in this moment? Oh, I always say the same thing. I say, 
get a beautiful little notebook and start keeping your drinking diary. And how that works is you get up in the morning and you commit. I will have one drink tonight or I'll have none or I'll have two. Do that only for a week and see if you can keep your promises. If you can keep your promises, you're probably fine. Uh, as long as you're sticking to the lowest drinking guidelines. If you can't keep your promises, you already know the answer. And you probably already do know the answer if you're even asking the question. And then the second thing is always, are you numbing something? Are you self-medicating something? Is there something troubling in your life? Because you should see a therapist and you should deal with that, not by drinking, putting something down your gullet. So those are the beginning steps of re-examining the role that alcohol plays in your life. And then you have to make some really hard and difficult um, decisions. You know, it's interesting because even though I'm in my 16th year of sobriety, the one night of the year that bothers me is New Year's when I hear the pop of, of the champagne mm -hmm. cork. It, it's still triggering for me. And I think we have to know that it is everywhere. It is everywhere. And you will be that person for the rest of your life, should you choose to quit, who has to stand by their guns, as you are, stand by their guns, their dis decision that it doesn't serve them. And I think that is the biggest question. Does it serve you? Is it serving you properly? And I think that what's interesting, being a psychotherapist, I tend to see families as mobiles. And when one person gives up drinking and, and really starts to benefit from that and improve their life, you can see it ripple through the rest of the family. Communication becomes better. There are fewer lost tempers. And so you can, it's not very hard to imagine the benefit. And in my case, for instance, I take uh, care of my granddaughter in Los Angeles. And she's two, and there's no way I would be allowed anywhere near her if I were still drinking. So the gifts are enormous, and everybody should be asking the question, is this serving me? Is it making my life better? I end every podcast episode with the one question, what is your number one piece of advice on how to age powerfully? Oh, uh, very clearly, if you want to thrive, continue to experiment and try new things. I have a life full of younger friends. I have a new career as a psychotherapist, and I'm 70. I have no intention of retiring soon. I have a new book in the works. I think we um, have to look at lost dreams and realize there's time for them and seize the day. I love that. It is a, it's a beautiful message to end on. And your story is so inspirational. It has provided me with so much motivation um, and reassurance and validation on the road that I have chosen because it isn't easy and yet it is so worth it. And it is because of books like yours and and people like you um, sharing your story that it really is moving the dial. And so for that, I appreciate your time and your wisdom and uh, joining me today. So thank you so, so much. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's been a joy.
Thank you once again to Anne for joining me today on Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. If you'd like to follow Anne and her journey and all of the work that she's up to, and she's doing phenomenal work in the space of women and alcohol specifically, she's on Instagram. It's at Anne, without an E, A-N-N, at Anne Dowsett Johnston Official. You can find her there. And don't forget, we've got our social media handles as well. Let me send them all of them to you. It is at Aging Powerfully with MG, at Melissa Grello, both on Instagram. On YouTube, you can find Melissa Grello. And we've got some great clips from the show that we're uploading there as well. And finally, on whatever streaming platform you are finding us, we would love a like. We would love a subscribe. That way you can find out anytime an episode drops as well. So also leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. And finally, website, agingpowerfullywithmelissagrello.com. Again, thank you so, so much for each and every one of you joining me here, listening and watching. And uh, we look forward to having you here next time on Aging Powerfully with Melissa Grello. Mm -hmm.